you're saying is that a coach or a leader is somebody who joins somebody as a companion on the journey. Exactly. And that's a potentially a, a new way of thinking about leadership because it is often thought about in that more kind of mentoring way. Cody Royal. Cody Royal. Author and coach to the coaches Cody Royal. Bill Belichick he didn't play professional football, but he's still able to join those players and, and work on solutions uh, through them and find success. There are so many posts, memes, blogs, research studies on trait theory of leaders. It's a good starting point for anyone who's looking to lead anyone into anything is an ability to... Leaders and coaches are often concerned with the performance of people in their team, but I've heard you say that coaches are performers themselves. Can you explain what you mean? Think of our leaders as performers. They are participants in the game just as much as our players are. I'm not sure you can kind of sit there and say, you know, all great leaders do this. I actually think what they do have is... Hey there, friends. Welcome to the Happy Habit Podcast. I am your loyal host as ever, Matthew. And if you're wondering or if you're thinking to yourself that things sound a little bit different, especially at the start of this episode today, well, you would be right. That is what they call in the business a lively introduction. And after, what, 374 episodes over the last almost four years, I thought it was high time for me to shake things up and make things a little bit more interesting it uh, will certainly hopefully uh, garner a little bit more attention for the podcast because, well, I'll be honest, I put an awful lot of effort into these episodes, hundreds and hundreds of hours over the last almost four years. And uh, I'm obviously trying to get the message far and wide about what I'm trying to do here. And if it means just editing things slightly differently and uh, shaking things up, well, then so be it. And indeed, I might even uh, put out a poll to see uh, what listeners think of uh, the new introduction to the podcast. Now, obviously, it'll be different every week, but uh, the idea is that it'll be a little bit more interesting than the introductions have been to date. And this is where you come in too, by the way, because if you're enjoying tuning in, please like, subscribe, share, tell even one person about this podcast, about all of the great subjects that we cover in the health and wellness and motivation space. There are 374 episodes, so much value in there. And in recent times, as you will know, I've been interviewing experts from a variety of different health, wellness and motivation spaces. And I use the term experts because these people are masters of their field and they bring their own experience and value to this podcast, ever more so than I could possibly provide on my own. So that's why I'm leaning towards interviewing people these days because these people have so much experience to offer. And if they can offer us even the potential to improve ourselves by even 1% per day, well then my job on this podcast is done. So there you are. Your only job is to listen and to tell people uh, that you're getting value from this series. Incidentally, we are on Instagram and on YouTube now also. So if you want to check out the videos of these episodes, well then you can head over to those platforms and subscribe over there there too. And talking of experts, I'm joined by another one today. Hopefully you enjoy this. This episode is all about leadership. 
Can I throw a quote at you, first of all, out of the door? This is a quote from author John C. Maxwell. He says, a leader is one who knows the way, goes the way and shows the way. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, you can build on top of it. I think they, uh, a leader might also be someone who uh, is finding the way with you. You know, in my world in in professional sports, that's often the way. They they haven't actually been there before, so they might not have played necessarily, uh, particularly in the North American sports. Um, they may not have won a championship before, and so you, you can't say they they know the way necessarily. But I think a, a modern leader is someone who's willing to acknowledge that and say, yeah, but I, I'm come with me still we're going to find the way together because uh, I've got a pretty good idea of how this might come together. Um, and so, yeah, I, I can't fully subscribe to the quote, but I, I think it's close. So what you're saying is that a coach or a leader is somebody who joins somebody as a companion on the journey as such. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, again, that's a, potentially a, a new way of thinking about leadership because it is often thought about, you know, in, in that more kind of mentoring way, right? Like you, you have to have been there and done that to be able to lead others. I don't subscribe to that. And particularly in sport, there are plenty of examples of uh, where that's not true. Uh, one of the most famous being, you know, Bill Belichick <laughs> didn't play professional football, played division three football, and so everyone who says, you know, you need to have been there and done that, well, he's never blocked anyone in the NFL in his life or played in front of 100,000 people, but he's still able to join those those players and, and work on solutions uh, through them and find success. Well, Bill Belichick is somebody even uh, a non-sports aficionado like myself would have heard of down through the years. Looking at somebody like him and indeed other great leaders and coaches, uh, what would the basic traits or skills be that they would have that would enable them to be able to be so charismatic that they could take other people along with them on that journey, as I said, to success and progress and optimization. This is an interesting one. I, there are so many posts, memes, blogs, research studies on essentially trait theory of leaders. I have a hard time with that. I don't subscribe to trait theory. I think if you look at the traits of leaders, they're on a such a wide spectrum of, of those who've managed to have people follow them into whatever cause, political, sporting, um, your world in, in health, uh, that I'm not sure you can kind of sit there and say, you know, all great leaders do this, all great leaders have these traits. I actually think what they do have is uh, a high level of self-awareness, um, a, a really high level of self-awareness and, and the self-awareness actually breaks into two categories. There is a social component. It's not all about me. It actually has a social component. You've got to understand how others are interpreting you and how you fit into a group is part of social uh, self-awareness as well. And so I, I think they're often high on those and 
that's a good starting point for anyone who's looking to lead anyone into anything is to know yourself a little bit, but also know how you're perceived by the particular group that you're looking to lead. Well, that's really interesting. You preempted my next question because it was all about self-awareness and uh, that propensity towards self-analysis, because it's a theme that comes back again and again and again in all of these self-help books that I've read down the last uh, three or four years. And um, yes, self-awareness certainly seems to be key. What about compassion and empathy, too? I'm sure that's probably an extension of that ability to be able to connect with other people and part of that analysis that we're talking about. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, empathy in particular in my world, in team sports, where you're now dealing with global teams, you know, like whether that's in uh, basketball, football, you know, we're talking, you know, uh, 10, potentially 20 different social backgrounds. And, and if you break those social backgrounds apart in terms of it might just be how someone interprets leadership because you and I are talking about the Western version of what we perceive, but that's not the same as, as a multitude of other versions of leadership uh, and, and uh, cultural ideas of how you speak to a leader, how you interact with a leader. Um, those are different in Asian cultures. They're different in uh, Polynesian cultures. And so uh, the, the the ability to empathize and understand and whether you can fully walk a mile in those people's shoes or not, I think is maybe beside the point. It's an, an ability to uh, try to comprehend the lens that they're viewing something through. And that's particularly tricky now because we are a global society. And so you're being asked to lead people from so many varying backgrounds of uh of cultural ideas and i've just talked about leadership there's a whole range of other things that are viewed differently in those different cultures as well that you've got to try to understand and navigate through well this is true not just in sport but in other fields too because of the facility to be able to work like we are now over the internet uh, remotely and people uh, tend to have work colleagues in different offices in different parts of the world so that uh, that uh, multicultural aspect to jobs now and that uh, need to be conscious of how you interact with other people from different cultures is more important, I think, now than ever. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I'm sitting here talking to you, Matthew, and I'm in Toronto, Ontario. I'm from Melbourne, Australia. My wife's from Sligo. Uh, When we go home, you know, it's even if we look at just the the socio-cultural dynamic within islands right it's it's changing and changing fast and there's there's new people emigrating there's new cultures that are arriving that have these uh, different ideas uh, different ways of life and, and it makes for a richer society and so yeah understanding that dynamic whilst also being able to plug into yourself and understand um yeah th- have that self-awareness piece is is the the modern leadership it, it's where everyone is going that's where everyone's talking about it's where all the research money is going is now that we've created this global society how do we lead these different groups well leaders and coaches are often concerned with the performance of people in their team but i've heard you say that coaches are performers themselves can you explain what you mean by this yeah there's this idea that 
kind of emerged, you know, probably through um, a, a lot of militaristic thinking um, of just the the leader as a servant. And what that became was, you know, that the, the uh, workaholism was fine because it was in service of the team and making sure that they could uh, they could perform and um you know going above and beyond and and essentially we've we basically we've ended up with this unintentional uh, kind of landscape at the moment both in business and in sport and the military kind of went through it and avoided it um a little bit but where we're just burning out our leaders and um, so then they can't serve anyone because they're burnt out. They're just done. And, you know, I think where we need to move towards, particularly in professional sport, where workaholism and individualism amongst leadership is still rife, is to think of our leaders as performers. They are participants in the game just as much as our players are. And so what we know from all of the science on knowledge workers, on athletic performers, on uh, experts in basically any field that we can find is that their, their performance matters. And they, when we do knowledge work and you decimate your ability to use your brain, like with little sleep, with poor nutrition, with uh, a lack of understanding of say what time zones do, to your uh, ability to mentally perform, um, we need those things back. And so we, we need to better map the performance environment of our coaches, of our business leaders, uh, so that we can start to introduce some of those things. Because uh, yeah, for instance, a lack of sleep impacts your ability to be self-aware and to adequately reflect on yourself. And so when you say, yeah, I, I can work 20 hour days and I'm still performing at a high level. The answer to that is no, you can't. And even more so, your team knows that you are exhausted and drained and moody and they pick up on it and they think less of you is what the research says. Talking of sleep, have you read that terrific book, Why We Sleep by Professor Matthew Walker? Mm hmm. Have you read yeah. that? Yeah, I have. Yeah. It's such a fabulous book. It really is. And uh, I'm saying this to anybody listening out there because I, I rave about it constantly. And uh, he, he makes the uh, statement in the book that uh, sleeping, I think, only four or five hours a night is equivalent to uh, drink driving the following morning because you're so cognitively impaired. And uh, so absolutely uh, you're, you're preaching to the converted as far as the importance of sleep and performance uh, is concerned. I have worked in uh, media for about 15 years and communication mastery is key to be good uh, in media. Uh, communication uh, mastery is central to being a leader. Talk to me about uh, this and about how mastery of communication separates a good leader from a great leader. Yeah, well, can we start at the top and say that the traditional idea of communication needs some adjustment, and I've written about this in the tough stuff. The fact that, you know, that we talk about the big five, right, in communication, so verbal, written, et cetera, et cetera, listening, uh, but they don't capture self-talk. So the, the actual communication that takes place the most is within your own mind. And so there's various 
different estimations on how many words you speak to yourself, but it's in the tens of thousands. I think we can, we can safely assume. Uh, and then also behavior as a way of communication. And so it's really a big seven that we're talking about. And so when we talk about communication, we can't leave those two out because they probably communicate the most to other people uh, and ourselves of, of any of the, uh, the kind of key styles of leadership. Uh, of communication, sorry. And so let's start there. We we need to address those two because we need to bundle them into communication that we're working on. Um, and then second to that is I would link it back to what we were just talking about. There's a lot of studies on the impact of, say, uh, sleep deprivation on your ability to just audibly communicate. And one of them that's particularly compelling for anyone that does knowledge work, so, you know, CEOs and executives, as well as coaches in sport, is sleep deprivation has been shown to severely impact your ability to choose the right words to use and your ability to intonate. Now, when you're talking about either presenting, like, like you do, professionally and your ability to intonate and understand how to communicate a particular message as well as a, a coach for instance who's yes you've got your your team talks that are kind of you know a little bit glorified in their impact but your ability to have a one-on-one -on -one or a small group a conversation with a group of players or your coaches and choose the right words and intonate in the right way has become probably never more important because they can actually be interpreted as abuse if they if you use the wrong words and you use the wrong intonation and so those two things link together we're talking about you and your sleep lifestyle choices that you're making around your own performance has an a severe impact potentially on your ability to communicate with the right uh, language and, and the right intonation and so that's just another small example of how we need to start to think about ourselves as performers. We need to look at our, our nutrition, our sleep, our, uh, our uh, alcohol consumption, our uh, fulfillment in other areas of life, because the impact is, is on outcomes like our ability to uh, talk and listen and uh, our, our self-talk and our behavior and how demonstrative we are they communicate a lot more than we think they do to other people. I'm interested to ask you a little bit more about the power of listening. I always say we have two ears and one mouth. We have two ears for a reason. And yet most of us spend most of our time talking rather than listening. How important is it for a good leader and a good coach to be a good, empathetic and compassionate listener? So Simon Sinek named his what was it, his, his second or third book "Leaders Eat Last." I, I actually think a better a better one would be "Leaders Talk Last," and it's it's just not the way, is it? You know, we we think about you know we walk into a meeting and and so we're in the meeting room and there's ten of us and it's the project team and uh, you know we're 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 trying to get this this new app released out into the app store or whatever it may be and. And everyone sits down and they just wait for the leader to speak and to, to take the reins. And, and it really should be the other way around. The leader should be the one uh, 
who gathers everyone's perspectives on whatever it is that we're tackling can point out can you know catch the good within what we're doing the the great effort can maybe direct the conversation once we've all had a chance or the, the right people have had a chance to speak and so yeah that that skill of listening and intentional listening and trying to gather uh, important information so that when you do speak, it has real cut through and and is actually informed speaking, uh, I, I think, again, is just the sign of a, a great modern leader is that they'll actually sit there in silence for a lot of the time. And it, it's quite striking because people aren't used to that, but it, it allows you to approach whatever it is you're working on from a position of, of power and, and of information because you've spent the time to listen. It reminds me of that TV program where the CEO goes back to the shop floor but does so incognito to get a sense <sighs> of what's happening at the, the very granular level of the company that he owns. Exactly. Yeah. And those are such great examples because they're so removed from that level of operation. You know, it's kind of the joke is that the executives sit in the ivory tower or the, the business owner sits in the ivory tower. That is not a good thing that like that, that, that has become a joke that you are so far removed from us up in your ivory tower that you don't actually understand how your own business operates. And that's what makes that show so compelling. No, absolutely. It's one of my favorite programs for that very reason. You mentioned your book, The Tough Stuff. In, tough stuff. in that book, uh, you look at emotion and the role it plays in detracting from a coach's performance. What exactly is happening in the mind of a coach or leader or a person who falls victim to emotion in this context such that it affects their performance negatively? Yeah, well, this is how I got into really working in, you know, I call it coaching performance. So looking at the coach as a performer, it came through the emotional lens. So I had a, I'd coached for 15 years. I coached Aussie rules or AFL. And uh, unfortunately we had a player take his own life. And so, you know, I thought I knew everything there was to know about coaching. You know, I was 15 years in as a head coach, you know a few things by then, but, this situation threw me through a loop where I, I hadn't considered the emotional toll of leadership. I just thought it was part of it. And so, uh, yeah, the uh, emotion links very closely to my own experience. That's why I'm so passionate about it. And the first thing that I would say is I really dislike the narrative that emotion is bad or it's bad for decision-making or don't make emotional decisions or don't be emotional. It's part of the human condition, whether you like it or not. And this this idea of you know coaches in particular being some uh, monk on the sideline who kind of doesn't show any emotion and makes rational decisions, I don't think is really giving us a full picture of humanity. I'm interested in whole humans, and so that comes with uh, the emotions that come with it. But where I think we need to go with that is understanding how those emotions manifest in us as individuals because how i perceive pressure for instance in a pressure situation is going to be very different to how you experience it and we might actually be in the same game 
we, <laughs> you might be sitting next to me as my assistant coach. You're feeling pressure in a completely different way and it's manifesting a completely different way for you as it is for me. And so, again, it goes back to that awareness piece of really interrogating ourselves and how we interact with things like pressure, how we interact with things like stress, how we, particularly men, uh, deal with anger because it comes whether we want it to or not. You know, it's a, it's another thing that uh, I have issues with at the moment in that we're still trying to just suppress men's anger, but it comes anyway. And any man will tell you that, that you, you can you can talk about just saying, oh, well, just don't get angry, but it, it bubbles up to the surface. So again, it's learning skills to deal with that anger, just like we we try to learn skills to deal with pressure just as we try to learn skills to deal with um, our own thinking and guide our thinking and, and mindfulness. And so, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about us really diving into learning about our emotions so that we can interact with them, not suppress them because they are helpful and they're there for a reason. And we need to acknowledge that. Okay. So while we may very well deal with emotions and pressure in an individualistic way, is, is there any universal tip or a piece of advice to help people out there who are listening in to help them deal with pressure in a pressurized work-related situation? Yeah. The, the best way that I know how is to pay attention to your attention. So where does your attention go when you feel like you're in a pressurized situation? So does it go to things that aren't relevant to the task? Does it go to yourself? Does it go to other people? Does it, uh, you know, how are you reacting? And if, you know, this is where I think journaling can be quite interesting is if you diarize those thoughts and where your attention goes over a period of time, you'll start to see some trends with for yourself. And so again, it's it's not a prescription holistically that that everyone can deal with pressure in the same way, but what everyone can do in the same way is pay attention to what they're thinking about and write those thoughts down, good or bad. It's a non-judgmental thing. What you're looking to do is capture over a period of time. It might only be a week. But over a period of time, you'll start to see certain trends with yourself that you can then, again, go back and interrogate and say, oh, geez, that's come up every day that I've, you know, in every in every high pressure meeting that we've been in, I've uh, talked less or I, I haven't been able to focus on the task that we're doing. I'm thinking about picking my kids up. Isn't that interesting? And And what might I be able to do to rectify that? And so, again, it allows us to interact with it a little bit more rather than um, uh, just when, when it's not written down, it's, it's not hard and it's, it's difficult to see those trends. And following on from that then, how does a performer, a leader or a coach deal or cope with disappointments, setbacks or perceived failures whenever it seems that that is the opposite of what they're striving for as far as their goals are concerned? Yeah, and it depends on what those goals are. But I think there's there's two things. One within sport that that I really look at is 
we have to remember that we're in competition. So whilst we've kind of gone through this mindset change of control the controllables and it's only our performance that matters, at the end of the day, there's an opposition out there that train as much as us, have access to all the same information and all the same preparation and all the same best practices and all the same fitness drills and all the same skill drills that we do. And so they are just as prepared for the competition as we are. And so this idea of if we get everything right, we'll win is, is a bit of a nonsense idea because the opposition get to respond. It's a little bit different to a business challenge where you, you're kind of dealing with a bit of a market. And the reality is if you put out a good product, there's a fair chance that people are going to buy it. Whereas in sport, you can actually have your best performance and lose the opposition get one shot on goal in a football match and score from that and you don't score and so again it's this idea of what success actually is and acknowledging that particularly in in elite sport where we're in competition and they get to respond and so that makes achievements the hardest thing that's possible and so there's a little bit of perspective there perspective taking i think uh, in dealing with disappointment and setbacks and just acknowledging that we're trying to do really difficult things and that the reason that they're difficult is why we like winning them. So that's that's the first one is some perspective taking. This is really difficult and this is what makes it worth it. And we didn't get it this time, but what can we do next time? And then the second one is to zoom out. When you look at successes and failures on a different time scale from the one that you're currently on, again, it adds a new perspective to how you interpret it. And so it might be that you, you know, made the uh, the final four of the competition but didn't quite get to, you know, the All-Ireland um, and you're disappointed and that's a setback. But when you zoom out and look at where you've come from, and the fact that you maybe shouldn't have been there in the first place based on, you know, whether it's just the size of the county or the budget or the uh, whatever it may be, you can now start to look at that. That might actually be a success when you zoom out a little bit. And, you know, I think it's true a lot of the time when you zoom out, you can see the progress uh, a lot more clearly than when you're zoomed in and you're just dealing with, yeah, but we lost this one game. And so those are two things that I would look at straight away for people is let's acknowledge that this is really hard and this is why we enjoy doing it. And so the result didn't go our way this time, but it will next time if we we keep believing in um, in this team and this group and these people. And then second is uh, when you get a chance after feeling the loss and feeling how, how difficult it is, make sure you zoom out. Because when you look at that different time scale, um, like a longer term vision of where you've come from and where you are now, often there's tremendous progress that you need to acknowledge as well. And would you use these two components also in order to help you maintain motivation, even when things are going well for you? Yeah, definitely. And I, I tend to work with teams that are not just interested in winning once, 
the projects that I take on are when someone comes to me and says, we want to create a juggernaut. And that's most interesting to me because that is the hardest thing to do in in my world in sport is to win and then win and then win and then win because the motivations of the people change over time and it's what makes what dublin have done for instance regardless of what you think about it in in football is what they have done is one and one and one and one with essentially a, a a group that has stayed together and as their motivations have changed and they went from being, you know, 24, 25 year old uh, young men to, to parents, even that change would have changed things. Right. And, and in terms of their motivators and what was important to them. And, and so as they, they're evolving as human beings, they're also staying motivated to continue to chase this really, really tough thing to do. And, and I think that's the most compelling thing is, is not just once, but how do we do it over and over again because the motivation needs to stay high. And so, yeah, uh, zooming in, zooming out, uh, uh, looking at different timescales, acknowledging that what we're doing is really tough, but that's what makes it worth it. Those are elements that can keep particular groups uh, nose to the grindstone so that they keep doing the work that they need to do and keep innovating uh, even through that success rather than stopping and thinking the same thing they did last year is going to get them the same result next year. Just to put that uh, Dublin reference into context for our international listeners, uh, Dublin have won the All-Ireland National uh, Football Contest here in Ireland uh, multiple times in recent years, much to the chagrin of, of other teams in this country. And I suppose Dublin are uh, similar to uh, Brazil in football, who have a great record on the international stage, and uh, New Zealand in rugby. And uh, so, uh, yes, much to the chagrin of their competitors. Uh, can I ask you, talking about teams, there you mention in your other book where others won't you talk about intelligent teams uh, these are teams that break rules and go above and beyond their competitors what defines an intelligent team well i think they have a an understanding of who they are and a methodology for how they want to achieve what they want to achieve and so sometimes that's titles but sometimes not sometimes it, it is progress or sometimes it's to represent their community but there's some real intelligence behind what they're doing so uh you know cogent thought and the organizations often have alignment about what they're trying to do right the way through the organization and so that allows them to be innovative because uh, often they're forced to be, but also innovation is often part of the fabric of who they are. And so it's not surprising when they do things that seem, you know, kind of crazy to other organizations, uh, to, to them, it's just part of who they are. And so it's not that crazy. Uh, I think that's what the intelligence is. And you see there's a lot of examples right now of teams that are, competing at levels far beyond their basic resources because they have just used some intelligence and some thought into who are we and then what are we trying to achieve. And similarly, there's some very, very high-profile teams um, 
one who wears uh, red shirts and plays uh, football um, <laughs> that have no idea who they are and their performance is is so lackluster that it's shocking and it's on the front page of a newspaper for not for, it's like for underperformance and so that that's that's what i mean when i talk about intelligence is yeah intelligence actually allows you to bat well above average we shall name no names. <laughs> how much, I'm interested to ask you this, how much is success and performance and reaching our potential about embracing personal responsibility and doing the ugly work, the hard graft and shouldering not just the labour required, but also the expectation too? Yeah, I mean... I, I've changed my opinion on this. So my, my my third book is called Second Set of Eyes and it's about uh, coaching coaches. So the work that I do now. And through doing the research into that and, and really looking at health and high performance and decision-making and uh, awareness, it seems to me that being social animals and being uh, part of tribes historically and uh, groups now and our ability, you know, for social learning is really our superpower as a, uh, as a species. It's the thing that we do better than anyone else in the animal kingdom. I actually think whilst the, the helping yourself part is a good starting point, I actually think we we also need to remember to come together as groups, and that's what high perform. That's how humans perform at a high level is that we actually uh, connect. And so, whether that's the Harvard study, right, the, the one outcome out of you know a hundred years of of looking at at health and uh, and learning, and you know, was was relationships and lack of relationships uh you know being detrimental to health and full relationships being what actually led to you know the people that lived the longest and their brain stayed healthy the longest uh, right the way through to you know some of the decision making science coming out of neuroscience where pairs are actually best to make decisions so it's not an individual uh, who has individual biases or is susceptible to individual biases or a, a group like a large group who are in, uh, susceptible to social biases, it's a, a pairing. And so the way that I've come to look at this is I think the self, so me, is, is a really good starting point. I've got to get off the couch at the end of the day. I've got to get motivated to get off the couch and understand my values and reflect on myself and strive for things. So that's the starting point. But then after that, I think there's a really compelling case for making sure that we enroll others in our journey as well and go and get help from people, whether that's a coach at the gym that can help you just lift an extra couple of reps or someone like yourself who's interviewed all these people and go and consult with you and, hey, can I have a coffee with you? Can you tell me what you've learned? Like a, maybe a mentoring relationship or a relationship with your, your family that's where I think the real high performance is, is, is actually coming back together as, uh, as humans, because 
That's all we've got at the end of the day is this shared humanity. And it turns out that we make each other better. Very nicely put. I like that. Um, I read another great book. Final question, by the way. I read another great book called The Mindset by Carol Dweck. And it's all about a growth mindset as opposed to a limiting or closed mindset. Can you talk to me and share any advice you have at all about how to foster a growth mindset on a consistent basis? Because what we used to motivate us yesterday to acquire a degree of growth may not work today, for example. So how do we continue to grow mentally in order to achieve those goals and optimize our performance in the long run? Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that I would start with would be, you know, I think a fixed mindset is also helpful in certain situations, right? Like where you are going for a particular goal or there is a, a closed time scale on what you're trying to achieve is you, you do actually need to be fixed. And so uh, this, again, we, we, we tend to kind of take these ideas and say like, this is good and this one's bad. And I don't really subscribe to that way of thinking necessarily. But for, for a, a lot of people, a, a growth mindset and the idea of um, essentially being able to take learnings out of whatever occurs in your life, either to you or for you or as part of how you interact with the world as being a learning opportunity and an opportunity for you to uh, continue to grow and learn new things. I think is crucial whether you're a leader, whether you're a performer, whether you're an individual performer, uh, uh, just looking to work on uh, your your well, your ability to run a half marathon. Um, this idea that you are accepting non-judgmentally of what happens to you, and you're interested in what that is trying to teach you, uh, so that you can grow. Um, you know, I really think is is one of the core pieces to actually realizing what we're calling high performance, uh, because you've got to grow into that, and you and you actually need to take all of the the instances that have happened to you through your life, perceived good or bad, and um, and grab onto them and say this is actually valuable for me because it's going to help me grow, even though it sucks right now and it doesn't feel very good. And I, that is, I think that is difficult to do in the context of life and society and people telling you whether things are good or bad. And so I, I think my, my hope for people, if you're listening to this, if you've made it to the end, thank you. <laughs> but, but also it is that having a growth mindset is hard because often you're told not to or that you're, you're something is good or bad or is not helpful for you. And so I think knowing that people are going to tell you that and sticking to this, this thing that people are telling me is bad is going to benefit me in some way in the future. Whether I can see what that way is now or not doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, commit to it. Please, please, please stick with it because there are tremendous benefits to, um, yeah, growing through that event that has happened to you and it will come to to fruition in the future in some way shape or form whether you can see it or not so much great advice an awful lot of value in there cody give me the name of your three books again 
First one's called Where Others Won't. Uh, as you said, it's about teams that think differently. The second book is called The Tough Stuff. It's about the emotional toll of coaching in particular, but I've had people from uh, emergency services principals say that they resonated with that. And the third one's called Second Set of Eyes, and it's about working, uh, coaching head coaches in sport or mentoring what most people would call. And if people want to reach out to you and find out more about you, where can they go? The best part about me is with a name like Cody Royal, I'm very easy to find. Uh, so CodyRoyal.com is the easiest. I've got everything there. But also on social media, I've got all the the handles, Cody Royal, at Cody Royal. So I'm very easy to find. And yeah, please do reach out to me and, and talk to me. Email me, send me a tweet, uh, shoot me a message on LinkedIn. I use social media to be social. So. Great stuff. Well, thank you so much for sharing some of your thoughts and experience with us today. Cody Royal, thank you. Thanks for having me, mate. Well, thank you for listening to this edition of the Happy Habit Podcast. As I always say at this point, until next time, stay happy. Thank you.